Hello and welcome to Teaching Python. This is episode 106 and it's we're interviewing Al Swigert from Automate the Boring Stuff, from Invent Your Own Computer Games, from about eight other books and courses and content that I can't remember off the top of my head. My name's Sean Tiber. I'm a coder that teaches. And my name's Kelly Schuster-Paredes and I'm a teacher that codes. Well, welcome <laughs> Al to the show. We're excited to have you. This has been a work in progress for quite some time. I think when we were first sketching out ideas for guests we'd want to have on the show, you were have always been sitting in the top five uh, <laughs> since day one. So we're glad we finally have you on the show. Welcome aboard. Yeah, it's great to be here. And I also forget how many books and courses that I've made <laughs> uh, sometimes. <laughs> well, we're, um, we're excited to have you and, and we'd like to spend some time with you talking today about the books that you've written, the process of learning through reading, and the challenges maybe that you've seen in, in terms of creating content for people that aren't sitting right in front of you as you're presenting it to them, um, and and just go from there, and we'll see where the conversation takes us. All right. That sounds great. Um, so before we get into that, we'll start in the same place we do every week with the wins of the week. And Al, we're going to make you go first uh, to share something good that's happened inside or outside of the classroom or in front of your computer, away from your computer, however you want to share it is good with us. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, I actually have two wins. Um, the first of which is that I got a talk accepted at PyCon. Um, this was great because I had submitted four different talks and then I started getting the rejection emails first. And the way that Gmail just sort of collapses all the emails that are similar to each other, I got the first one and then just sort of assumed that the others were also rejections. And then a little bit after that, uh, the, the acceptance one came in. So uh, this is uh, the working title is um, something about the uh, coding tool landscape uh, for 2023. And so I'll be giving this talk about linters and code formatters. There's about a dozen or two dozen of them that you'll find on PyPI, the Python package index. And uh, I, I just wanted to sit down and actually figure out, like, what do all of these do? How do they compare with each other? And then just sort of summarize all of this research into a 45-minute talk. So I'm looking forward to, to giving that talk at PyCon 2023 in Salt Lake City uh, in uh, April, this April. Wow, it's coming up, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, it's going to get here really fast. It's like, it's like the yeah. time's coming. Yeah, and and it turned out... Uh, I. I, you know, been in pandemic mode for so long that I, I really haven't been thinking about conferences all that much. And so I went ahead and just uh, found other conferences and submitted uh, my talks to it. And I got two other talks uh, accepted as well. So one is for the Python web conference. That's an online conference. Uh, I have a talk submitted, uh, accepted there. And then also for PyTexas in Austin. And I'm living in Houston these days, and I use every opportunity to go and visit Austin. So that's going to be fun as well. That's awesome. When is um, that? Uh, PyTexas is early April, I think. And um, maybe it's April 13th. Python. I'll be there. I'll be in Austin that time. Maybe I can sneak in. <laughs> oh, perfect. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, uh, the Python web conference is it's an online conference. I believe that's sometime in mid-March. Um, I don't have that right in front of me. But um yeah, it's it's really great. I <laughs> I uh, felt pretty bad because I think a lot of my PyCon talks uh, have been rejected. Uh, I think the the only time I've ever given a talk at the main PyCon conference was I think in 2015 or 2016. 
Um, so, so I'm really excited about this just because there's, there's so many great talks that are submitted there. Um, and it's, it's nice that, uh, I, you know, I actually managed to, to squeeze one in. I, uh, had to submit four of them and was just coming up with all sorts of ideas and, and everything, but I guess the persistence paid off. I think that kind of makes a lot of people out there a little bit happy to know that you've been rejected a couple of times at PyCon. <laughs> yeah, more than a couple times. <laughs> it's it's yeah. it's very daunting, and I know getting accepted to speak is is quite a quite a feat. We we spoke last year, and I think I was freaking out the whole entire time, and I still had that massive imposter syndrome going. I can't believe we're speaking here. So, um, <laughs> it, it is it is a great thing to actually go and listen to you speak. So, we'll be excited to see that. Yeah, I. I'm pretty sure that after your 50th or 60th PyCon, that that feeling goes away eventually. <laughs> well, I, maybe once we'll get there, we'll let you know, right? Like, yeah. I think this is going to be number three for us or number four that we've actually attended and we've only spoke once. So I guess we've got some work to do. <laughs> yeah. And my, my second win was actually pretty recently. I have a group of friends that I hadn't seen in about 15 or 16 years. Um I, I just knew them through uh, some meetup and uh, contacted one of them and uh, just said hello because we would occasionally just text each other. And I decided like, hey, I'll be in the area for, for this meetup again. I can meet them. And it turns out that four other people uh, from that social group also came by. And so I saw a whole bunch of people that nice. I haven't seen in over a decade. So it, uh, you know, at, at any time I could have just you know, sent an email out to them, but we just never did and lost touch. But that's kind of just a shows that, you know, you can really just re go ahead and reach out to other people. And, you know, we're all busy these days, of course, but uh, it's worth it to to keep that persistence and and keep trying to to make that connections. There's um, I'm not sure how how accurate this story is, but apparently there's a, a Japanese Nintendo manual uh, for some video game that says everything not saved will be lost. And I think there's there's a lot of truth to that statement. <laughs> yeah, and I think also one of the things that a lot of us realized during the pandemic is that, you know, so much of the world is just a phone call or a text or an email away. And those connections that may have been, you know, uh, far back in our past, they can be renewed pretty easily if you just make that outreach, make that step to reconnect. 100%, yeah. yeah. So I have a lot of friends so, around the world and, and when we get together via Zoom, I think that was the, the best thing, um, kind of awakening it for us. We're like, oh, well, since we're all used to Zooming, let's Zoom and have wine night. Some of us would be having <laughs> wine morning, but because I have friends in uh, Australia and the UK, but hey, it's five o'clock somewhere. So <laughs> exactly. Well, Kelly, how about your win this week? Oh, my gosh. I had a wins and a fail. Um, had my first group project presentation with my data science course. And tell you what, there's a lot of lessons to be learned to recording or not recording, but um, working with strangers and trying to get a, a project pulled together in two weeks. And working with adults is, um, I posted this on LinkedIn, I wanted to say interesting. It's it, it's definitely different than working with kids because when you tell the kids they have to get it done, most of them get things done. But when you work with adults, you just assume that they will work at the same ability or dedication as, as you or, you know, your group, but that's not always the case. And, uh, 
and I'm being my silly uh, control freak person. And I was getting very um, anxious with my our GitHub. I was like, seriously, you guys, there, have you ever heard of folders and, and nomenclature? And and it was really hard to just like not say anything and let go. I mean, I said it a little bit. So it was a win and a fail. And <laughs> I, I think I didn't aggravate anybody too much. And we presented. I haven't got our grade yet. So... You know, I'm still on that cusp of when fail, but it was a really cool project and a lot of learning. I was pushing myself a little bit with the request and trying to find quality APIs from education sites, which is not, which is funny enough. There's like nothing hardly out there that's quality. It's mismatch of stuff or you have to pay for it. So um, that seems like a good goal for me in the future. I'm still working towards that database of information on education. I think there's a lot that's out there that we don't do. So those are my wins and fails for the week. All wrapped up. All, all together inseparable, right? <laughs> totally. <laughs> well, for me this week, the, the win was reconnecting with an old student. So, uh, well, I guess she's not old. She's just a former student. No, you're just, but... <laughs> you're just old. <laughs> I'm the old one, yeah. Um, so I had a, a former student of mine reach out. She's taking AP computer science principles and she just said like, I'm a little bit stuck and I need some help and I need someone to explain it to me. And, um, so I, I literally just tutored her a few hours ago. And what I remember about her as a programmer and as a, a student was that she had this gift for being able to self-correct her code as she was writing it. So maybe she didn't have all of the insights, but she could look at her code and see the details and see, oh, I, I need to change the structure of this, or I forgot the semicolon because they're in JavaScript now. Um, and it was really great to see that she's still doing those things. Like she's still building those habits. She's still using those strengths to get better at writing her code. And so it, by the time she came to me, she didn't have any questions about you know, syntax errors or the easy things to fix. It was, why isn't this behaving the way I want it to? Like, and and so we spent some time talking through her, her the intent of her code, what's actually happening, where the gaps could be, looking back at the problem statements that she was given. And I think by the time we got through everything, she had a much more solid sense of understanding about like what she was trying to do and how to accomplish it. And it was all really cool stuff about um, image filtering. So she was like, taking images that were in color and turning them to black and white by manipulating each pixel one at a time. And it was just cool to see her doing that and get a little bit of a glimpse of a student that I had when she was in sixth grade and what she was capable of then and what she's doing now as a 10th grader. Um, so, you know, four years later or five years later, um, it's pretty cool to see. And it was really great to reconnect with her. And the the thing that was amazing to me and, and just showed how what an exceptional kid she is um, when I knew her in middle school, she went through some major health challenges with some, what, what could be some permanent effects, some things that would have held her back. And we had to, and today we had to work around her lacrosse practice schedule. So she's, uh, she is not just, you know, getting better at computer science. She's thriving and, and work doing a lot of cool athletic stuff and just persevering. And it was really great to have that moment to catch up with her and help her out a little bit. Very cool. That's a good group of kids. Those those tenth graders, they're yeah. they're, they they yeah. keep popping yep. in, popping in, and they're doing a lot of things. We got some serious developers uh, production at uh, Pinecrest, so <laughs> watch out, world. <laughs> well, I, what I what I love about that group of students in particular is that I don't know what it was. There was a certain chemistry 
of them and with us as teachers that they really just enjoyed making stuff with code and, and solving problems and creating things and just having fun with it. And it's not something that you can just give to people or make them feel that way. They have to bring it to the, the learning experience. Yes. And I think a lot of them actually had automate the boring stuff as some of their projects. <laughs> so, I mean, what a good oh, transition. Well, you've heard of that one. That's one that we've, yep. uh, we've uh, pawned off on things that the kids are like, but what am I really going to do with this? And we're like, oh, but wait, we have a book for that. <laughs> Thank you, Al Swigert. <laughs> oh, excellent. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> well, why don't we jump right in there? We'll skip the the fails for the week and we'll jump right into books and learning. And I guess, you know, my experience and, and Al, I, I'm sure that you hear this quite often, but one of the ways that I first learned how to code in Python um, much later, because I learned right before I started teaching it, was grabbing a copy of Automate the Boring Stuff and working my way through it, you know, reading through the exercises, reading through the explanations, and just sitting there and writing code until I became more and more comfortable and, and fluent with it. And the benefit that I had of having prior computer science training is I was comfortable changing things and experimenting and altering stuff. But one of the things that struck me about that book, and, and I think one of the reasons why it resonates, is because it is something that you can pick up and start working with. It starts without assuming any prior knowledge of programming, of even how to install Python onto your computer, and starts you from the very beginning. And I know that I've seen it come back time and time again as, as a recommended book for beginners. Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, kind of how you got started writing books like this and how you, you know, wanted to start teaching people through the medium of, of books and, and the written format? Sure. Yeah. So I first started, I think around 2009, I uh, was dating someone at them who was a nanny for this 10 year old who wanted to learn how to program. So he asked her to ask me if I knew of anything. And I thought, sure, yeah, I can I can find stuff online. That'll be great. And uh, a lot of the stuff I found online was just sort of uh, very one off or, or small things or, or tutorials that weren't really that high quality, or they were things made for computer scientists and people with advanced degrees and, and things like that. And I kept thinking back to the way that I learned to code, um, which is a story I hate telling, because I was one of those people who, who learned how to program uh, in basic by making little games. Uh, this would have been in the early 90s uh, when, when I was a kid. And, you know, the family had a, a 386 uh, computer with like a 40 megabyte hard drive or something like that it's uh, I, I always sort of roll my eyes whenever people go into these oh back then computers were so slow uh, stories but I have them too and and I hate telling this story because it makes people think that uh, they have to have started programming when they were very young it's sort of like an Olympic uh, Olympic gymnast or something like that which is completely not the case and I always bring up that everything that I learned about programming can probably be learned today in a couple dozen weekends or so. Um, so everything from like third grade up to finishing high school, um, just because in the 90s, there really wasn't that much out there. Um, I, I basically only had books to learn from. And even then, I, I didn't really know that many people who were into programming. Um, 
I would find books that were more computer books rather than programming books. So they were books I would say like, oh, this is the monitor and this is the CPU and and have these like pretty little pictures. But uh, they wouldn't actually tell me like, OK, how uh, how can I hack the Pentagon? That's what I really want to know as an eighth grader. Um, but uh, and I did find a couple books that talk programming in basic by just showing the source code to little games and things like that. And I sort of just reverse engineered how they worked. Um, and, and for the longest time that, you know, these couple of books were basically all I had because there was no Wikipedia or YouTube tutorials or, or anything like that. Um, creative commons didn't even exist much less freely available creative commons books on programming. Uh, in fact, sort of, Python is no, known as a batteries included language because it had is so many uh, software libraries and, and other modules that it came with. And really, that's sort of a product of its era, because back in the 90s, a lot of people didn't really have Internet access. So just there, you know, there was no Python PI, uh, PI, the Python package index where you could download modules from. So finding third party modules was really hard. So it, it was really great that Python came with all of these modules already. Um, and that's not really a, a problem anymore. So uh, just because uh, books were sort of my default, because there, there were there wasn't that much in the way of online resources. And so you know, learning to program today is, is just so much easier, and you can get caught up to speed so much faster. The problem mostly is just that the expectations are that much higher these days because, you know, if you were like programming computers back in the 90s, the the main pop culture reference was sort of Bill Gates, um, who was sort of like, oh, you can, oh, Al, you're a nerd. Maybe you can be a rich nerd like Bill Gates or something. But now it's uh, programming is is so widespread and everybody's on social media. Everybody knows what web apps are and uh, we're all excited about AI and self-driving cars and uh, blockchain and a bunch of other overhyped technologies. <laughs> um, but um, so, you know, when you start programming, your, you know, little games that you would make in basic that were all text-based aren't as exciting and, and people feel like they need to become uh, super mega stars with their billion dollar startup and, and, that's a lot of pressure for people who uh, just want to learn to code and, and maybe get a new career or even just uh, pick up a new new tool to use in their current career. Um, but I I still think books are are a good way to get into that. And I know I'm biased as an author in that opinion, but um, the book sales for Automate the Boring Stuff with Python uh, and, and the web traffic that I get on the website where you can read it for free, uh, automatetheboringstuff.com, those really haven't slowed down. And the first edition of that book came out in 2015, I believe. So it's, <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm really glad because the, those royalty checks will keep coming in. <laughs> but um, I'm, I guess there is something about books just being a, a self-contained uh, tome of knowledge that will always be there in print in your hands and, and you don't have to worry about the website going away uh, or, or just losing it as it slips by in, in your social media timeline or something like that. So I think that that still has a certain appeal. 100, 100%. So as you were, as you were writing the book, um, you know, one of the things that I appreciate about 
books and for learning is that they have like a consistency to them, right? Like it's a similar voice throughout. It's got a, you know, a structure to it and a, a flow to it, the way that it's organized. How difficult is that for you as an author to try to pull that together and and keep that kind of vision of what the book is going to to do for a learner, how they can use it as you're creating it? Is it something that you find relatively easy and natural to do, or is it something that you really have to work at to make sure that it, the book all fits? It's easy. I, it's easier said than done, I think, because whenever I, I start a new book project or I'm, I'm thinking of the new edition, it's always fun and exciting. It's it's kind of like it's more fun to come up with names for your band than to actually form a music band with people and do all the work. Um, but I'll I'll usually start by just sketching out what I want the table of contents to be and what each chapter will cover, and and then just sort of getting a rough skeleton of all the different sections that I'll have, and then I start filling it in. And when I realize that oh, actually this structure doesn't work at all. And then I have to start uh, removing chapters or taking chapters that I realize are, you know, 50 pages long and I should really split it to two chapters and now I have to renumber everything. And then I realize I'm introducing a concept uh, before uh, I actually, uh, like well before I use it. So maybe I should push it back later or I've introduced things out of order. So I need to rearrange everything. Um, it's It's a lot of, small tiny tasks and it's uh really hard to sort of get any sort of estimate on it i mean i guess i've been writing books uh for over a decade now wow <laughs> time flies but um i'm still incredibly bad at estimating how long things will take i think i always tell myself i don't want it to be october and i'm still working on this book and I don't know what it is about the month of October, but that's always October always seems so far away. And then before I know it, it's still it's October and I'm still working on the book. <laughs> God, although, thank goodness for pre-recording. Sorry, Sean, you have to edit that one. <laughs> um, I was going to. So I was going to say a couple of things just about the books and I, and this is one of the reasons why I love having your books on the shelf is something about kids and even any adult learners, this idea of books online versus books in your hand and the ability just to like have something to physically see and do, um, given the students, your, your tic-tac-toe book before. And, and they're like, but can I find this online? I'm like, sure, you can find this online, but how much better is it going to be as you're typing along and learning and finding it out? Um, and so I guess my, my thought question to you is, you know, you, you're not an educator for a sense, like a K-12 educator, but yet you write so cleanly and nicely and you have this theme for, it's almost like it fits for kids. I guess maybe you guys are, we're all big kids inside us coders, but <laughs> how, why um, can you do more? <laughs> all those questions <laughs> I want to say, like, it's such a great, great resource because there's really not a book out there for, you know, middle school kids to learn Python or high school kids to learn Python, but yet we can give them coding with Minecraft. We can give them making games. Where's your next kid's book? And I air quoted that. So you guys can't see that in the recording. <laughs> Yeah, um, I mean, a lot of the the writing quality, uh, I just have to give that 
uh, credit to that to my editors at No Starch Press and and just the fact that No Starch Press is really first of all they're comfortable with having uh, my books available under a Creative Commons license so that people can just read them online for free, but also they they don't really pressure me to to meet some sort of deadline. They they understand that uh, sometimes things just take longer than than it was previously thought and they want to end up with a quality book and you know so as long as i don't take yeah decades and decades which i think i gladly would for some of my projects um but yeah a, a lot of that is uh the the editors uh that i work with are really talented and i i started saying in in the dedication of a lot of my books that it's very misleading to have just my name on the cover um, because they contribute so much to that. I will be sending my editors uh, like Word docs and I've gone through them multiple times and I think like, okay, this is, this sounds pretty good. And then they'll come back to me and like every page has 20 or 30 <laughs> marks on it. Um, and 90% of the time I, I'm just clicking on like accept change, accept change, accept change, because like, yeah, that, that is actually a better way of phrasing what I wrote. Um, and, uh, and as far as ideas for, for books that I've had, um, I've, I've mostly been sort of writing for what I would have liked as a kid. Um, so I, you know, one day I, I might write that how to hack the Pentagon sort of book maybe, but, um, but, uh, originally it was just sort of like, I just want to see the source code to a bunch of games and, and learn how to play around with that. And, and so that's how I got the the ideas for my first few books uh invent your own computer games with python and then making games with Py python and pi game and and one of those programs was a little cipher uh like a caesar cipher program so i thought hey it'd be great to write a book just on a bunch of different ciphers uh that were sort of the classic ciphers uh which is what we call ciphers before world war ii which were uh are simple enough that you can break them with a with a laptop, um, since they don't use you know modern complicated mathematics and everything. And uh, and then with automate the boring stuff with Python, I remember, uh, I think it was 2012, but really it, this is sort of a, a perennial news media story where uh, a lot of people online were were saying like, hey, every it's going to be the future, and everybody needs to learn how to code, and and that sort of line. And and I thought about that, and I thought like, well. No, not really. Like, not everybody needs to be a software engineer. But I, I thought about this about it some more. And I thought, like, well, what if everybody knew how to program just a little bit? Not even computer science stuff, but you know, sort of like I I can't design or fix a car, but I know how to drive a car, and that really adds uh, to my skill set and and my capability as a person. So I thought, what are the things that would really be helpful. And, and I also tried to keep this list to a minimum, but Automate the Boring Stuff with Python still turned out to be like a 500-page book. Um, and, and the third edition is probably going to add another 100 pages to that. But um, that's that's sort of uh, how I got the, the rough ideas uh, for that. And, and then later, I just kept having uh, sort of other ideas for like, oh, hey, there's a there's a mod for Minecraft that gives you programmable robots. It'd be great to, to have a book that covers that and, and all those other um, sort of uh, topics as well. Um, yeah, it's, I, I think I've, I've been lucky, like automate the boring stuff has really been 
my major, my one major success sales wise. Um, but uh, the the other books I've written seem to have found in in audience uh, as well and and well liked. So I'm I'm basically just going to keep doing this for as as long as <laughs> I can I can get away, put off uh, having a real job. <laughs> Your next book maybe could be like the the middle school hacker. How do you hack Terminal with Python or something? Because yeah. I think all my students would, when I show them Terminal, they're like, oh, you know, and I, and I only change change directories or I'll make a new folder and I just show the basics. But they're always like, oh, can I like do this? And I'm like, sure. Not today, though. Oh, <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. I mean, there all is, those fun things. There is something just it it looks like hacking in the movies when you're at a command line, um, especially these days, because most command lines have syntax highlighting. So all the text will be colorful as well. And it looks even cooler. Um, but uh, and then the, but like what's really intimidating about the command about working in the command line is that you know, you're just sort of presented with this prompt and you're not really given any clue as to what to do next. And, and so it feels a lot more mysterious and intimidating than it really is. Um, but yeah, uh, uh, one, uh, my next book idea that I had was, uh, after I'm done with the uh, third edition of automate the boring stuff, I really wanted to go into sort of mathematics, for self-taught programmers, um, it's it's just the the main uh, worry that a lot of people have when they're first starting out is they first of all they wonder, am I too old to learn how to program? And the answer is always no, um, because it's and it's always hilarious because somebody will say like, I'm already twenty six years old. Is it too late for me? Is my life over? And I was like, oh, oh, sweet summer child. Um, <laughs> yeah, I like to tell them, I, you know, I was 21 when I started learning. Not, no, I'm just kidding. Yeah. I, <laughs> Sean's I, like, no, he, Sean's like, yeah, right, 21. <laughs> yeah, I, I always think that they're going to say, like, I'm 73 years old. And I thought, like, well, maybe that, maybe not a career, but you can definitely still program and, and make fun little applications. And, and it's definitely still something you can do. Um but yeah, it's it's a worry that is far overblown, and and the second worry is I'm not good at math, so uh, I don't think I'll be able to to program. And everybody will always tell you like, oh, you, you don't need to know math uh, to program, uh, which is true and not true. It's you definitely don't have to be like a a mathematician or or somebody who crunches numbers all day or, or, or anything like that. But it does help to have a, a sort of number sense uh, where, where you kind of understand what, when, you know, truly like what it means to divide something or, or work with percentages and just have like a, a basic comfortness. And there's a lot of math in programming that's pretty simple, but it's never really taught in schools. And my main example of that is if you have to write code to determine if a number is odd or even, um, you know, all, all programmers know is like, oh, yeah, you'll just mod that by two. And if it's zero, then it's even. And if it's one, then it's odd. Um, but mod isn't really something that we ever learned in in high school, uh, in our math classes. And it's, it's really simple. It's just basically just the remainder operation. Um, but uh, and, and I started thinking like, well, there's a lot of little things in programming uh that's related to math that you kind of have to know and and sort of like just working with 
Cartesian coordinates, like the X, Y axis, that's something that comes up in programming a lot. And, um, and also just sort of developing like a, a familiarity with a bunch of just sort of number concepts and being comfortable with negative numbers and, and fractions and percentages, but like the actual, the actual mathematical operations, that's all done by the computer. You don't actually have to know how you don't have to remember all the steps to long division or something like that. Um, but just, uh, oh, there's, there's so many other, uh, other examples I have. Linear regression. There- I just learned that. And I, I was thinking to myself, you know, two lines of code, I've got five variables with just calling the linear regression of <laughs> using pandas. And I've, I've done tons of slopes of the line, but it didn't make sense of what the heck I was doing this for. You know, okay, I have scatter plots and, you know, in middle school or high school when I was doing math. But the idea that I can actually tell if it's if there's a correlation with two lines of code would have been would have been nice. So a lot of these things, when I was showing the some of my students of the work that I was doing in the class, I'm like, look, I just slope slope y intercept all this and whatever <laughs> this jumbo mumbo is, and I have it printed out in two lines of code. They're like, wow, and I'm like, see. <laughs> Well, and I think that's that's one of the things that's really tough. I mean, when people say that they're good at, I'm not good at math, a lot of times what they're saying is I'm not good at computing numbers, right? Right. That's the best thing about being a programmer is that you don't have to compute it. You have a computer to do that for you. What you have to be good at is like knowing how you want to solve the problem and knowing the relationships between the numbers and seeing how they fit. And, and that gets a lot easier when someone else is doing the computation for you. Because you can focus on, you know, what is the correlation between these two numbers? And you don't spend 20 minutes in between trying to actually compute it. It happens in a few seconds, and then you can iterate on that and learn more about it. So I, I love this idea because the I've also heard that, you know, like, I'm not good at math. I can't be a good programmer. It's like, well, that's not what it means to be a good programmer, to, to be able to compute things in your head right. and be able to be good at long division. It means I'm good at thinking through problems and breaking those down into smaller steps and being able to integrate that back together into a, into answers. And, and, and that's where I love this idea of empowering people with code, right? That it takes things that they thought they weren't good at and makes them really easy to do so that the stuff that they are actually good at, they can do more of it. I can just see like, you know, as I'm, as you're talking, both of you, like a future math course in high school and, you know, in high school or college or whatever, and you have all these snippets of code that do things and it's like, okay, here's your problem, which, what would you use and why? It goes back to that source of why are we learning what is the why behind the problem solving? And it's such a beautiful thing to to be able to show a student or something like, here's this problem, here's this these options. Why would you choose the one that you have and and what will help present a better solution for the problem that exists? And that that's huge. That's a coder. That's a coder. And and who cares if you can you got an A or a ninety eight in math class and in college, who cares? Because most of the kids can plug numbers, but they don't know the whys. And that's important. <laughs> yeah, I I failed calculus in high school. And let me tell you, that failure haunts me for, for my entire life. And I never amounted to anything afterwards. <laughs> but um, I mean, of course, that's that's not true at all. And and then in, in college, I, I did credit by exam and, and managed to I think I made a B or something like that. But um, 
but even even stuff like calculus or or even linear regression and and that sort of data science stuff um i was i was thinking like even more basic than that for this this book idea um i've i've pulled up my notes on on this and it's it's sort of like uh i have one chapter on just number bases and like yeah what exactly is binary and hexadecimal and and how does that relate to to what computers are because you know in, in all the hacker movies you just see streams of random ones and zeros and it looks really cool and nobody actually understands what that means and it's like well actually it's just numbers except you use zero and one instead of zero through nine and and it's it seems a lot less cool once you once you kind of understand that um and then there's there's just sort of like boolean logic was an another thing just with and operators and or operators um and just a, a tiny little bit about random numbers and and none of these concepts are really that detailed and and it's not a book that presents you with math problems at the end that you have to solve which i think is is the source of a lot of anxiety for people when it comes to math because you're just sort of seeing all these numbers and other occultic symbols and then you have to follow some procedure and then you get some other numbers and then you're told that your numbers are not the right numbers and and that's really discouraging but when you're programming, it's it, you're. I mean, most of the time, I'm just sort of trying things like, oh, uh, do I need logarithms for this? And I'll just you know import math math dot log two, and then it's like, yeah, yeah, this number looks right. Or I was like, oh, that's not the right number, and then I just figure out like sort of what it is I'm trying to do, and and it's a it's a model that's a lot more like, well, you just keep working at it until you get the answer. It's not sort of a you need to come up with the answer. No, your answer is not correct, and therefore you have failed. Kind of, kind of mentality, um, and I think that's that's what's sort of turned off a lot of people uh, from math is is this idea that it's just manipulating abstract symbols according to arbitrary logical rules. And if you're not in like that five percent of the population that's kind of just naturally good at that or just interested enough that you stick at it uh, until you become good at it. Um, you get really turned off by that and and you just sort of think that you're not ever going to be good at it, um, which, of course, is not at all the case. Well, I kind of think of it like it's the difference between a jigsaw puzzle and Legos, right? Like for too long, too many teachers and, and there's clearly exceptions to there's some amazing math teachers out there who don't behave this way. But there are so many students who feel like math is like a jigsaw puzzle. I have all these pieces and they go together in exactly one way to create this final picture. And I either fail at it or I don't, or I lost a piece under the couch and now it'll never be finished. Right. <laughs> Whereas programming is more like Lego blocks where I can assemble them in different ways to create something new and make something different. And I'm still assembling things, but instead of there being one right answer, there's like an literally infinite number of possibilities that I can create with the the pieces that I have. <laughs> it's that's actually a really good way of putting it. And it's, it's funny that you mentioned jigsaw puzzles um, because I have this jigsaw puzzle of um, uh, this Vincent van Gogh painting and it's a thousand pieces or something like that. And I'm sort of at the point where it's like, well, I'm really busy. I like jigsaw puzzles, but they take a long time. And ultimately I'm just, producing a, an image that I could have just printed out from the internet if I really wanted to. So at a certain point, I just started just placing pieces just randomly on 
the on this uh, piece of poster board and just gluing them down. And it uh, it mostly looks all right. Um, and because at a certain point, I was like, "Well, damn it, this is my puzzle. I can do anything I want with this. It's like I don't have to, you know, perfectly fix everything together." And and I'll um, I'll uh, do some origami with my nephew. And and I've just given him this origami bill of rights where he has the right to not use origami paper and he has the right to not make perfect folds. And he has the right to just sort of give up halfway and start on a different model if he's having problems with this. And it really, you know, as long as you are continuing uh, to work at it, it, you know, the you know, a thousand years from now or five billion years from now, we're not going to be like remembering all of these uh, like bad failures or anything like that. Um, and uh, getting stressed about them is really detrimental to making uh, actual accomplishments. Um, Yeah, yeah. We have to all we have to all ponder on that one because that was really deep, and and I think you summed up everything. in um, a bunch of our teachers are probably would be listening, going, "Yeah, it's exactly how it should be in education." <laughs> Can you imagine if if your origami, your computer science, your math, your English was not always perfect, and if if you didn't want to put a comma where you're supposed to do a breather, then instead of just a hash, you know, something, and just get creative with whatever you're producing. It would be nice. It would be nice. Yeah. Just to know that we're always progressing. We're always rolling forward and getting, you know, learning. It's funny. I was talking with a friend of mine the other day and he was saying how one of the things that stuck with him from when he was in high school was that he was tasked to write an opinion uh, paper, right? In English class or something like that. And he wrote his opinion down and he got a zero on it. <laughs> He's like, excuse well, me, <laughs> you asked for my opinion, <laughs> not for facts, not for, not for like an informed argument. You asked me for my opinion. How can you give my opinion a zero, <laughs> right? It wasn't the opinion of the uh, masses. Clearly must, it was the wrong opinion. The right. Right. <laughs> I mean, we, we really confuse uh, learning with performance like in in one of those it is important to have the right answer but in the other it is not you know it, and you know if you're if you're learning medicine you're not going to go into surgery tomorrow so you know it's you don't you it's all right to not know a thing before until you learn how to do that thing um it's uh and and you know, learning to program is, is something like that. Yeah, sure. Once you are a professional software engineer, it's important to to write bug free code. And uh, spoiler alert, software engineers do not write free code, even then. But um, but while you're while you're in the process of learning something, um, it's it's important not to get too hung up on this. And and it's it's really easy to to hear me and and all this stuff I'm saying and think like, oh, this is all very like flowery mushy feeling sort of thing and yet at the same time it is actually critically important to the success of if you learn something or uh if you give up and go to law school instead or, or something like that i'm um you know i've i've sometimes stop and think about all the things uh when i was a kid and as an adult that i started trying and then i thought like well i i don't really want to do this um and 
uh, I'm going to try this other thing because I'm better at that. And that one of those things I was better at was programming, which fortunately is something that's employable. So I, I don't end up uh, homeless and starving. Um, but there's, you know, I'm I'm not limited to being a software developer. And, and in fact, that's sort of why I got into writing books uh, as well, because it was this other thing that I kind of tried for a while. And um, uh, I, I still say that the success of Automate the Boring Stuff with Python is, you know, it's it was a lot of hard work and talent on my part, sure. But it, um, I had started writing other books and I had self-published them. And around 2015 is when Python was really taking off in popularity. And, and I had this book and I had practiced writing programming books before then. Uh, and it was the first time I had a... a a traditional publisher instead of self-publishing and a lot of people were looking for a beginner book and it was also freely available online because i other people had come up with this thing called creative commons uh licenses and all of these things came together at the right moment um and and i think like well you know really you know i i've had a whole series of of good fortune and also just privileges as well and these are things that should be made available to everyone. You know, it shouldn't just it shouldn't just be a matter of of luck for for most people to have success. Yeah, and I I think the other thing that I I mean, in a past life, I was in marketing, and and one of the things that I've always been impressed with with automate the boring stuff is that um, when you put something out there that is good quality and valuable to people and you make it available for free in one format, right? Open through a Creative Commons where people have easy access to it. It raises awareness. It's like something that people can share and say, hey, have you seen this thing? And this is really good. And I know you're trying to learn how to code. Here's um, this available to you. And you can also get a really nice printed version of it if you want that. And so it gives people this opportunity to share with one another, to be able to talk about it, to build like a sense of connection over it without having a huge investment at first, right? They can try it, they can and see what they like about it yeah. and then be able to, you know, purchase it if that makes sense for them too. So it's not just that it's a good altruistic thing to do to make it available. I, I think especially in this case, it's also good business, right? And those don't have to be at odds with one another. Like altruistic good motives can also be good business. And I think that's a, a great thing about the way that you've structured automate the boring stuff with Python, invent your own computer games, all the other books you've released under Creative Commons, it's both helping people and it's good business. And I, I've always appreciated that about your approach. Yeah. And and even that was was all kind of luck. I mean, it, it does help with word of mouth because um, I can even just post about it on, on social media forums. And it's not seen as me spamming this product I'm selling because it's freely available. And the main reason I did that was because I didn't really think of myself as an author at first. This was just sort of a hobby that I was doing. And the internet means I can spend $15 a month and distribute hundreds of thousands of copies of my books because uh, web hosting is so cheap. And, and we all have these incredibly powerful devices uh, in our on our desks and in our pockets that can just wirelessly obtain copies of information. And... Um, and I, I, I guess sort of if you if you want to start maximizing the profit that you make, you start doing 
a whole bunch of short-sighted things. Um, you know, the, the first thing would be like, oh, well, first I would have to go through, uh, go against all of these people trying to pirate my books because that's costing me sales. And, and you don't realize like, well, actually, maybe not. I mean, maybe the people who are pirating this book, uh, you know, if you can successfully stop them from pirating this book, which you really can't these days. Um, but, you know, it's not that some of them would go on and then actually buy a buy a copy of the book, but most of them probably would just move on to, to doing something else. Um, and, uh, and also it really helped that I was working as a software engineer at the time. So I had the free time to, to work on this and, and the financial security to, to work on these books because spending a few years, um, writing three entire books before automate the boring stuff, it's really something that I could do because, you know, I had the free time and I was in good health and um, I had the a basic level of security. Uh, and then I was able to create this this thing that uh, really became something incredible. Um, <laughs> 100%. And I think well, like, I, I, I think like, go um, ahead, Kelly. I think like having your books on a shelf, I, I totally believe in learning through osmosis too. I used to sleep on my pre-med books during college and I, I you know, <laughs> granted I'm not a to- doctor, so maybe you don't learn that well that by osmosis, but we do both. Oh, everyone knows you have to eat the books. <laughs> oh, eat them. I messed up. I was on a diet back in college. I don't know. No, but uh, I do believe strongly having your books and all the other books that we have in our classroom, it's a, it's a great way for educators and learners, even just to see them to get the ideas of what can be out there we you know we have even you know, uh pillow which is not yours but pillow flask and having those library of books up there kids can kind of look and say oh what's flask what's automate what's what's this pie game what's this arcade you know thing and and it's just a great way to motivate people into code even if they pick it up to look and get some ideas before they dig into another tutorial Hundred percent love it. You've been an icon in in our classroom, and thank you. I mean, it's been awesome. Yeah. Oh wow! Thanks. That's that's so great to hear. And we got to talk to you <laughs> yes last year at the education summit, so that was even a better yeah, yeah. better uh, thing. Yeah, PyCon has a, an education summit. Uh, I think that goes back to 2016, 2015, something like that. Which. Um, because Python is, is such a brilliant language for teaching beginners how to, and, and I've met a, a lot of people through that. It's, it's really well, it's, it's really great. I'm going to keep plugging PyCon because I think it's, it's a wonderful conference. <laughs> Sean's um, going to plug it again too, because I, we're co-hosting somehow, <laughs> co-hosting <laughs> somehow the education summit this year. So oh, wow. me yeah, possibly no, thank- virtually, but. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thanks. Thanks so much for that too, because conferences, the, I've realized more and more that they are just an incredible amount of work and they just would not happen if a lot of people weren't working really hard. So thank you very much for that. Well, don't thank me yet. We actually have to pull it off first. <laughs> Sean's like, sure, I'll, I'll, we have, we have I'll nothing to drinks do. Afterwards. <laughs> just send it to me in Florida. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I want to uh, make sure we're, we're, wrapping up here because we're already having such a great conversation. We could probably keep going for hours and, and so maybe we'll have to do this again uh, soon. But Al, I want to say thank you for, for joining us today. Um, I, I think the, the best way to get started is go to automatetheboringstuff.com. You've got links to your other books there. You've got links to the full text of Automate the Boring Stuff. 
There's places to go buy the printed copies of the book, either directly from No Starch Press or from Amazon. Um, I know that when I have people who ask me what's the best way to learn uh, Python, both uh, both those two books as well as several of your other books get added to my recommend list. Those are the ones that I give to people and say, you should really check these out first. So thank you for putting those out in the world and for teaching us a ton of Python along the way. Kelly and I have both uh, picked up a lot of great tips and tricks uh, from your books, as well as just a lot of great core knowledge. So, so thank you again from the bottom of our hearts for putting your knowledge out into the world and, and making it a better, more educated place. Oh, thanks for having me on this on this podcast. It's, this has been really great. <laughs> yeah, I can't wait to see well, the I math think... stuff. And and I'm just going to dump it. In, I'm going to buy like 10 copies and just give it to the math department head and just be like, here, <laughs> maybe some of the guidance counselors in here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And if you're uh, if you want to connect with us, you can always find us through our website at teachingpython.fm. We're also on Twitter at teachingpython. Uh, I'm at SM Tiber on Twitter. Kelly, you're at Kelly Pared on Twitter. Um, I think I have a Mastodon account, although I've been neglectful of that <laughs> so as I. of late, and I need to <laughs> spend some more time with it. Um, uh, Al, I know that you're active quite often. I see you in the Reddit forums helping people out and uh, sharing your knowledge there. Um, people can also find you on Twitter from time to time as well. Uh, where's the most active place you are if people want to follow what you're up to and what you're what you're posting these days? Uh, let's see. I'm now on Mastodon, uh, mastodon.social. Um, it's Al Swigert, um, but my last name is kind of hard to spell. So probably the best way to find me is uh, inventwithpython.com and automate the boring stuff. Com. Um, you'll find links to, to social media accounts that I'm on, and, and uh, or maybe you'll just see me on Reddit on the Python and Learn Python and Learn Programming uh, subreddits as well. Nice. nice. Very nice. Well, I think that will do it for this week. Oh. Once again, Al, thanks for joining us. Uh, so for teaching wait, Python, wait, this is Sean. To, no, oh, wait. you have to plug PyCon again. Oh, I, one more time? Yeah, okay. okay. All right. <laughs> At least All right, one more one, time. <laughs> <laughs> One last postscript before we close out. Uh, Kelly and I will be uh, co-chairing the PyCon Education Summit this year in Salt Lake City and virtually online. Uh, the Education Summit is running on April 20th, 2023. Um, there will be both a, um, a full day format on site. We're working with the organizers to get a live stream set up. So those of us who can't join in person will be able to join remotely. Um, and the one thing I think we're trying to add this year is more opportunities for collaboration and working together to solve problems and, and really getting hands on with some of the stuff that we can uniquely contribute as educators to the PyCon community. So um, look forward to that. I think we had a call for proposals out for talks. Looks like that will probably get reopened and we'll have some more news to share about that in the very near future. So um, if you want to get more information, go to the official PyCon website, which I believe is us.pycon.com org right now. Um, and if it's not that, I will update this in the show notes and make sure everyone has a link to it there. Or just email Sean. I just say email him all the time. <laughs> I'm the one that answers all the emails, though. <laughs> all right. So uh, please get in touch with us if you'd like to help out with that. If you'd like to uh, contribute and volunteer, we're always looking for more help with that. Um, and I think that will finally do it for the show this week. So for Teaching Python, this is Sean. And this is Kelly, signing off. Thank you.